Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Aaron O'Toole has been ousted as conservative leader after yesterday's caucus revolt. What happened and where does the party go from here? The Ontario Chamber of Commerce has a new report that highlights sectors dampened by labor shortages and supply chain issues. Claudia DeSantis with the Ontario Chamber. She joins us to talk about it. And why is the U.S. South becoming an increasingly important lumber supplier here in North America? Lynn Kovach, president of the Western Retail Lumber Association, will talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Political uh, upheaval, of course, in Ottawa. Totally expected, I think, in many circles, though. I mean, just the way things have gone with Aaron O'Toole over the last little while, right, especially after the last election. Uh, his caucus decided to vote him out, and he's gone as of now as Conservative leader after members of the caucus voted by a considerable margin, 73 to 45, in favor of replacing him. Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson has the story. There has been extensive tensions and divisions inside the party from those who felt that the trucker convoy here in Ottawa should have been supported and don't support vaccine mandates, climate change policies like O'Toole had, or gun control and say they don't trust the former leader and that they did not like his flip-flops as they described it on the election trail. O'Toole's people have insisted that to make the party electable, they had to move towards the centre, adopting policies that some of the base and some MPs might not like. But they contended that it was the only way to get the party elected in major urban centres. Ultimately, O'Toole's own caucus has rejected him. We've also heard criticisms of his management of caucus and whether or not he was listening to them about their concerns. And of course, caucus management is a huge deal if you're a leader. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa. Joining us to talk about uh, what has happened and what's going to be happening in the future because of this, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Muhammad Ali, Senior Consultant with uh, Crestview Strategies. Muhammad, always a pleasure. Uh, busy, busy day. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Uh, as I mentioned in my preamble, uh, really, I, I guess it's not really a surprise. We knew, I know some people were speculating it might be a close vote, but uh, uh, Politics 101, basically, Mohammed says, if you're going to push somebody towards the plank there, you already know that you've got the votes to make this guy jump. I mean, they, w- they wouldn't have gone to this extreme of saying, yeah, we're going to do this right now unless they already knew that they had the numbers. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I would say that's an accurate assessment. I mean, you if you're going to go for, you know, the the kill so to speak you want to ensure you had the votes and support and i think there was a small group uh, after the election that were, were feeling quite disenfranchised by the leadership and how the election went and the policies that they uh put forth to canadians and i think that kind of grew with the missteps the continued flip-flopping the uh, decisions by Aaron O'Toole's team and and caucus management i think it all just fueled up into this one uh pivot of we're done there's there's a lot of uh disgruntledness with with Aaron O'Toole I know that some of the uh, the pundits yesterday kept focusing in on uh, on the conservatives finally backing the conversion therapy bill uh which was uh, you know not really what an awful lot of the people on the extreme right of the party wanted to see happen uh, but I guess they went along with that but I I'm getting the sense that this is really, as you mentioned, much more than that. I mean, that may have been a contributing factor, but there were so many more things. And it, it almost turned into, a, a, as you say, a philosophical concern among members saying, look, at, he just he can't take a position on anything. And, and, and that ultimately is going to be anybody's political undoing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one thing you have to be as a leader is consistent and clear about what position you're going to uh, stick to. Um, you know, 
Justin Trudeau, Stephen Harper, and Gretchen, and Prime Minister before, you know, to uh, voters are going to see through uh, inauthenticity. And if you're going to be inauthentic to Canadians and to your own caucus, you, it's it's near impossible to ever gain the trust uh, needed to, to continue leading. Uh, and so when you're choosing to make adjustments on the fly, when you're refusing to listen to people, I mean, that was a big thing that some of these caucus members had raised was uh, the, the, the lack of desire to speak to and find compromise that would work for as many caucus members, right? You know, it wasn't one issue. It will never be just a one issue necessarily, but uh, there's just too many factors that went into this that built up over a long period of time. And I think one, one thing we should remember that he ran uh, differently in three different situations. In 2017, he ran as, a, as more of a moderate uh, coming in third. Then this time around the 2020 leadership race, he ran more to the right and courted the social conservative vote. And then in the election, he's sort of in between both roads, but trying to run moderate. So, I mean, if you're going to dabble, you, you're going to uh, be faced with, with a tough situation. Well, there's another side to this, too, because right? I know that some of the people that were supporting him uh, that were speaking to the media yesterday said, well, he, you know, he just got some bad advice. And, and that may well be the case uh, in the instances that you've just referenced here. But it's still ultimately his call. I mean, he can say, oh, look, I don't agree with that. I, I, this is the better way to go. And uh, even if he is getting bad advice, it just seemed, Muhammad as if he was on the wrong side of, of so many different issues. The conversion therapy thing. I mean, initially he was opposed to that. Said he was, he, he was opposed to conversion therapy, but he wouldn't support the legislation. Changed his mind on that. Uh, of course, in the election, it was the gun control issue. Uh, you know, even the truckers. I mean, initially he thought this was terrible, that he wanted to, that he was the friend, he met with them and, and suggested the prime minister would have to as well. Uh, and uh, I, I, the lack of consultation, I guess, is the thing that I, I'm hearing from an awful lot of conservatives today is that uh, so many of them would uh, listen to the news the next morning and said, we're supporting what now? We didn't know that. He didn't, you know, that's not, that's not according to our plan. That's not according to our, uh, our platform. And, and who is he talking to and who was he getting his information from? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, there's a number of those key issues that, uh, his fellow caucus member were finding on the media that all of a sudden we were supporting a new position. You know, that's not going to fly very well, particularly if there's enough, uh, enough members of caucus and enough members in the conservative membership that are in senior level roles and such that are feeling like, well, what do we stand for now? Uh, there were prominent conservatives saying that I don't know what I stand for, my party stands for because it's so much, there's so much change, so much flip-flop. You know, I, I may have my position on some of these issues, but uh, at the very least, you have to stick to what you believe in and drive it because even those who detract who are your detractors will appreciate and respect you for saying, well, you really believe in this, you are agreeing on this. So then is there some other option or area that we can work together on? That's how you find good leadership. And that defines good leadership. And I, he never once did that from my observation from, or even those who I know that are within the conservative caucus. They're just, it, it didn't exist there. So uh, he's gone. Uh, the, the party bylaws suggested they have to pick an interim leader that day, which they did. Candace Bergen was selected last night, uh, which, again, by those bylaws, indicates that she can't now run for the, the leadership of the party. She's just going to uh, mind the House, I guess, uh, not unlike Bob Ray did after Michael Ignatieff left the Liberal Party uh, some years ago. 
how do you how do you handicap something like this? And who's a, I, obviously a name like Pierre Polivier comes to the top of the list here, uh, but you don't know exactly who else is going to be in there. Do you see anybody else even challenging Polivier? You know, it's 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 an interesting situation. So you know, Candice Bergen has you know her first task will be just to calm you know calm the uh, anxieties and frustrations and and bring everyone back to a position where like they're unified and and are united uh, because they still have a job to do in being an effective opposition to the government and being a voice for conservatives across the country. So that's task number one. That's not easy. The second is who would want this job? Uh, because it's not just simply the political climate around the country, but it's the political climate within the conservatives. You know, they're, they're at a, I think at a point where, you know, you have those who are quote unquote called the red Tories, progressive conservatives. A lot of them feel like they're disenfranchised. They have no home. They don't fit in the liberals. They don't fit in the current iteration of conservatives. So where do they fit? And I think that's something that no one really is fixated on because we're very fixated on, on the right you know, the People's Party of Canada and what that is, that, what does that mean? And so to challenge Pierre Polyvet, if he does run, I mean, there's names are being thrown around as Doug Ford as, as a possible candidate, Patrick Brown at Mayor of Brampton. Um, you know, there are names that are, are even thought of like Ron Ambrose. She one time was an interim leader and, and had flirted with the idea. Does Peter McKay make another attempt at this? I think any leadership contender will, will assess, will I have the opportunity to to show growth in the party and to be able to win votes in urban Canada, which they desperately need if you want to form government. Uh, I think that's a big issue and, and a big consideration for any candidate that's going to seek leadership. Uh, first lesson here, if Pierre Polivier actually is going to run, and I'm pretty sure he is, I agree with you. Uh, first and foremost, he's got to tell people how to pronounce his last name. I've heard about six different pronunciations. Uh, and he's he's not a newbie. He's been around for a long, long time. So they got to clear that up. The other thing, though, you touched on something that I think is a very interesting point here, Mohammed. You talked about, you know, the Mulroney kind of uh, Tory, the red Tory. I, is that an endangered species? I mean, I don't hear too many of them in the caucus, and they certainly don't have much of a voice in the conservative caucus now. Uh, and given the fact that, you know, the the the, the right side of the party uh, the, the, I got necessarily extremists, but I mean, the, you know, the ones who are stridently uh, conservative, especially when it comes to social issues, they seem to be controlling the party right now. And, and if that's the case, and you know, there's a case to be made, I guess, that even dumping O'Toole was an, an indicator of that. Would a red Tory even consider running as leader right now? Uh, you know, they even talked about Ryan Mulroney's son, who's the, of course, the, the Bay Street lawyer. Uh, you mentioned Patrick Brown, who's considered to be a middle of the road red Tory there's, is there even a base for them to, to even get a foothold in a, in a leadership race now? Because, you know, Peter McKay was supposed to be that guy, and they, they didn't even allow him to, to get the job last time around. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've had this debate with, with you know, colleagues and friends who were all politicos, and, and, I, and I firmly believe that it's, it's red tourism in this party is nearly dead. I think it's very hard for them to really make a place for themselves and especially in the upper echelon of the party. You know, you have some people like Michael Chong and Michelle Rempel who, who are still within the realm that may, many may consider red Tories. Yeah. But if you look at the entire front bench of the Conservative Critic Caucus, a lot of them are not red Tories. They are further, further to this uh, right side. And you have to keep dabbling into that even if you are red Tory. So it really muddies the water of what a red Tory can be in this party. And, and you know, case in point, Aaron O'Toole, 
he, he's a red Tory largely, or, you know, more close to that, but he had to dabble so much into, into the far right uh, for the party, which it came off is that this is not who he actually is. Um, and so it becomes very hard for anyone to really think about saying that, well, I have a real shot here to win and lead the party united. Um, and I think that that ultimately comes down to it. And, and it may scare up a number of, you know, good candidates that could actually make it become a good prime minister. Well, when we look at this historically, and I, I talked about this in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, Canadians by and large are pretty comfortable in the middle. I mean, sometimes it's middle left, sometimes it's middle right, uh, which is pretty much why liberals and conservatives all share, you know, they're the only ones that have been elected in government federally uh, since Confederation, because they, they, they kind of like that. They don't mind, you know, somebody's sneaking a little bit over here. It seems to me right now as if the conservatives have made a, a conscious effort right now to, to cut hard right here uh, and forget the moderate side. I mean, that's uh, clearly what O'Toole was trying to do here was take the party more to the middle. And uh, the party rebuffed him and said, no, we're not going there. Uh, how is that going to serve and sit with Canadian voters? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that, uh, that you know, Canadian voters would be comfortable with a hard right uh, team, you know, that's going to have fiscal responsibility. They all promised them that. And that's one of the things that everybody's platform. But social issues like the environment and things of this nature, you know, where do they where do they find middle ground in situations like that? Or do they even want to? I mean, don't forget the. You know, in their policy convention uh, just before the election, they, they refused to admit the, that, you know, climate change was an issue. So is, is that going to fly with the with those middle of the road voters? Yeah, I think you you, you hit the nail on the head there. It, they're going to have a very and continue to have a very hard time, uh, not just convincing, but also just coming to a realization of the need to have sound policy on climate change. It's a, it's a top three issue amongst Canadians. There is the issue around Indigenous reconciliation. Um, and in addressing systemic racism that are now much more at the forefront. Obviously, the economy is still top of mind for, for a great many Canadians. Inflation obviously remains, and conservatives always talk about the economy, and that's, you know, that's one of their bread and butter issues. But, you know, there's also the issue around, like, what does immigration look like in this country? And, and there are a number of those in, in conservative caucus that believe to restrict it. Um, there are those who believe that there's no issue around systemic racism, that we shouldn't do anything more, that... There's no issue with, you know, the discrimination that police officers face, you know, are, 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 are you know, uh, historically the systemic racism against, you know, people of color, particularly Black Canadian, Indigenous Canadians, right? So th th there is that dynamic that they need to realize. And I think there are a number, and this is an issue that's kind of, you, you see it publicly often, that there are a, a significant portion of the Conservative Caucus that are quite content with just simply having their ideology as their identity and not actually seek to lead and form government. I think that is an issue that this caucus has, is that there is a, 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 a split of people who believe like, yeah, you know, society is moving forward. There's issues. We need to kind of address them. We can't hide from them. We can't, you know, ignore them. And that's how we're going to get to convincing people that we're a serious party, a serious contender to form government. Then there's the other faction that says, well, I'm going to believe what I want to believe and I don't care. And this is how everyone believes. Well, some of those MPs are also ones who are in the safest seats in the country. You yeah. know, things in rural Alberta, rural, you know, parts of Saskatchewan, like they're safe, you know, winning 80% of the vote. They have no concern about what happens because their vote, their, their seat is safe. So I think that is an, an issue that, they are not, they're not able to reconcile. And I think that, and I think Aaron to try to reconcile that saying, look, I get it. 
But if we want to win, we need to do this. We need to address these issues around climate change, indigenous reconciliation, um, you know, systemic racism, and you know, issues of uh, integration for, for new Canadians. And what are issues impacting urban urban voters? They were they're largely blocked out of most urban centers, right? So I think these are things that they need to really think about. And the next leader has to find a way to bring everyone together uh, to address where do we go from here and how do we convince Canadians that we are serious about these issues. We've got a lot of soul searching to do, and we don't even know the time frame yet. We're hearing anywhere from four to six months before they even uh, choose a leader. So we'll see. Mohammed, great to get your uh, perspective on this. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Muhammad Ali, of course, senior consultant with uh, Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Inflation, uh, that's something we, we're not anticipating uh, was going to be a factor in the economic recovery after the pandemic. We just thought everything was going to you know, open up again. People were going to start spending money and everything was going to be fine. Well, uh, it's here and it's here in a big way. Or is it? Uh, there seems to be some conflicting information about that. I mean, the current debate about inflation uh, and just about every story that you see about this, it, it says, yeah, I know it's, it's it's a problem here in Canada, but we're doing better than some of the other G7 nations, including our neighbors to the south, which may or may not be true. Uh, our next guest is going to explain exactly why. Philip Cross is a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's also a former Chief Economic Analyst at Statistics Canada and uh, joining us on the program to talk about this. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for the time. Glad you can be with us today. My pleasure. Have I'm glad you had me on. There's, there's a couple of various. I mean, some people's eyes just glaze over and you start throwing statistics at them about cost of living, etc. Uh, but we also usually just take for granted. Okay, here's what the press release says. Yeah, it's uh, it's 4.8 percent here, and that's that's bad. But boy, it's a lot worse down in the states. But uh, I read your piece here, uh, and it's really in the Financial Post. This is not an apples to apples comparison, is it? No, it isn't. Uh, people think that just because something is uh, labeled consumer price index or the unemployment rate, that you can just grab it from any country and start comparing them. And in fact, almost all the major numbers have important national differences. Uh, in Canada, for example, we measure housing prices much different than in the U.S. The U.S. does a much better job at covering uh, used car price changes, for example. Uh, so when you dig beneath the numbers, you know, you look at it superficially and you, and you see the Canadian CPI is up 4.8, the U.S. is up 7.0, so you say, okay, their inflation rate's 2.2% higher than here. But if you dig deep in the numbers, I won't bore you with the details, but there are measures that are comparable, that are apples to apples. And when you look at it that way, the difference is a, a little over 1%. So uh, the uh, just comparing CPIs gives you... Uh, a pretty misleading picture of how inflation is doing in the two countries. Why is there there no uniform standard in situations like this? And I understand different economies are going to have different priorities. We understand that, I'm sure. Yeah. But but they all, whether it's the, you know, the UK, the United States, Canada, uh, most G7 nations, they all try to compare themselves vis-a-vis -vis each other uh, yeah. to see exactly where they stand in this situation. Yet they all must be aware of the fact that there are some inconsistencies here. Yeah, and that's one thing I conclude in the piece is, uh, you know, our statistics are not designed, should not be designed to satisfy every whim uh, of, of statisticians. At the end of the day, Statistics Canada knows it's going to be, its data is going to be compared with the U.S. I don't care about the other G7. I don't compare how we compare with Germany or Britain. Nobody does that comparison. But everybody compares ourselves to the U.S. It's quite normal. They're right next door. They're a huge part of our economy. 
So uh, I think Statistics Canada can do a better job of making its data comparable with the U.S. If that means that we have to accept, uh, you know, some methodological changes to housing that might offend some uh, some people as uh, on pure too bad. You know, uh, at the end of the day, it's much more important that that we make statistics easy to use. If we make statistics just something that you have to have a degree in and it's only for specialized users, you know, people are going to stop using the data and, and stop believing it. And that's much more corrosive versus Canada in the long run. Well, and as you point out in the piece here, there's even some disagreement within Stats Canada about what defines a year. Uh, I mean, we've yeah. got to get our own act together before we say, okay, we've got to stop comparing with other else. There's got to be cons- some consistency here too, doesn't there? Uh, very much so. Um, as you noted, that uh, uh, definitions of what is a year vary. Uh, definitions of what is in aerospace. I mean, I'm not going to go into the details. People can read the article for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point is that statisticians, and this is very much my experience in my 36 years working there, is sometimes there's a lot too much navel-gazing. There's too much, you know, arguing over the number of angels on a pinhead, and uh, there's not enough focus on what can we do to make statistics useful to everyday Canadians. Which which should be the ultimate goal anyway, isn't it? I mean, we always look at data, whether it's from Stats Canada or some other source, uh, as an indicator of, A, where we are at that moment in time. It's a snapshot, of course. Uh, but B, I mean, you know, how do we get out of this or how do we improve where we are right now? So the, the numbers are important. So, it, you know, we, we're banking on the fact that they're going to be accurate. Well, and not just accurate, but I also argue uh, as easy to you as possible. I mean, you know, some things are just going to by their nature are going to be complicated. Measuring GDP, I mean, GDP is a really hard concept for people to understand. There's no way to make that one easy. But we should be able to make inflation and unemployment, these everyday bread-and-butter numbers that come from StatCan, easy to use and easy to compare to the Americans. Because we know one of the first things everybody's going to do is say, how's our inflation doing compared to the U.S.? How's our unemployment doing compared to the U.S.? So uh, StatCan should be doing that right from the get-go. Well, and maybe... It's something as easy as definitions and, and uh, you know identifying the criteria. Uh, I, I mean, I've talked to people over the last couple of weeks because we've talked about inflation a lot there, surely, because of these numbers. Uh, and, and they're not quite sure what that means. Inflation is 4.8%. What does that mean? Does it mean every price has gone up 4.8%? I said, no, no, no. Well, explain it to me then. And, uh, you know, you've got to start there, I guess, with the most elementary uh, uh, part of this. Oh, that, that's, I hate to say it, but that is a tough one. In the CPI measures how much prices are going up. It doesn't measure the cost of living. The actual cost of living reflects how people react to rising prices. If people see the price of meat is rising and they substitute hamburger for steak, that's going to lower the rate of, of price increase in your, in your cost of living. But StatCan won't capture that substitution. They're going to measure the overall increase in the price of meat. They're going to keep the price of, of uh, steaks and hamburgers fixed. Uh, at least over the course of the year. Uh, and I understand that. You know, they have to meet certain rigorous statistical uh, concepts, but they should at least make it easy to compare compare to the U.S. Is there a desire uh, within Stats Canada, within Ottawa, and within the bureaucracy here uh, to make this a, a much more easy process for people to identify and understand and relate to? 
Unfortunately not. Uh, it seems to be, uh, you know, again, I'd refer people to the article, but at times, you know, based on my experience at StatCan, it seemed to be that every division, every major number wanted to do something just a little bit differently to prove that they're different, to to, to demonstrate their individuality. I mean, I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to get into what is behind that. But uh, too often people make it a, uh, a badge of honor to to be different, to be as difficult as possible, instead of making these things as easy as possible for the public. Well, not just for the public, but I would imagine for elected officials. I mean, there aren't too many uh, people, I would imagine, in the House of Commons these days with degrees in economics, and, and they could use a, a, a starter course in these sorts of things, too, so they could get a better grip of, of what's actually going on, because ultimately they're the ones that are going to decide on policy. Yeah. Well, it's not just politicians. I mean, I saw in, in testimony to the Finance Committee just a couple of weeks ago, I saw the Chief Statistician of Canada himself just naively compared the CPI in Canada and the U.S. So, you know, economists and statisticians make this mistake. So I can, I certainly cannot blame politicians. And God knows I have every sympathy for ordinary Canadians trying to work their way through this morass of different definitions and concepts. And uh, uh, as I say, we should be making this easy because, you know, even... Uh, trained economists and statisticians make these uh, common mistakes all the time. Well, it's a revealing piece, and I'll, I'll direct people uh, to uh, financialpost.com uh, slash opinion slash Philip Cross Inflation. Uh, it's a great article and well worth the read. Philip, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Philip Cross, uh, of course, a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald-Laurie Institute and a former chief economist at Stats Canada, so he knows whatever he speaks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What's happening locally, and how is that having an impact on local businesses here, which is, of course, where most of us spend our money, being the backbone of the economy? Well, there's an interesting report here from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce that talks about some of those challenges and how they're impacting uh, our economy here in the province of Ontario. Uh, the title is Ontario's Outlook is Dampened by Labor Shortages and Supply Chain Issues. Uh, we want to drill down a little bit on this report, and to do so, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Claudia DeSanti, who is the Senior Manager of Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Claudia, pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks. Uh, hope things are going well for you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Uh, you're, you're underscoring a few things here that we've talked about, uh, and, and uh, I, I guess this is going to be like singing to the choir for a lot of small business that are going to nod their head and say, yeah, we, tell me about it. Uh, but the things like supply chain issues, uh, lack of supply, certainly uh, lack of employment. I mean, trying to fill capacity within uh, certain jobs that uh, that are happening here. This is almost like a perfect storm uh, that's really having a negative effect in the Ontario economy and certainly certain sectors of it, especially. That, that's right. You hit the nail on the head. It's a perfect storm. And, and I don't want to lose sight of the good news, because when we compare where we are today from 2020, there's a lot of improvement. Everything is trending upwards in terms of GDP, employment, business confidence, which is something we measure in our report every year. Um, so, so there is a lot of improvement from the record lows that we saw in 2020. And the main reason for those things, when we ask businesses why they're feeling more confident, it's, it's vaccines. So they're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, the not so good news, as you mentioned, is that we're seeing these structural pain points. Um, labor shortages are, are extremely high in some sectors. Food and accommodation, 13% job vacancies. That's up from 4% pre-pandemic. Uh, so they're having a really hard time recruiting people to fill these jobs. 
supply chain issues. You know, we've all been to, to stores and or tried to order something online and the inventory is low for a lot of businesses that we're hearing. That, that's just uh, really been a challenge for them. And uh, it, it's forced a lot of them to take on additional debt. And for small businesses, which you mentioned, has been uh, a main concern for us. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they can't take on more of that debt. So there's a real risk that they won't survive once the existing support programs are uh, starting to wind down. Um, and then we have things like inflation and the increase in interest rates is just going to make things a little less affordable for everyone. Um, so we're very concerned about uh, businesses and also households that have hefty mortgages and what that does for uh, the cost of living here. The Ontario Chamber does such a wonderful job of, of looking after the interest of, of business, uh, both large and small. And, you know, there's some large businesses here. They've been impacted by this with, with things, as you say, like su- supply shortages and labor shortages. Uh, but it seems to me as if their ask from the government, and everybody's asking for government assistance these days, is, is more of a long-term situation. You know, you have to invest in infrastructure. You've got to give us uh, the foundations for this. The smaller businesses, Claudia, I'm, I'm getting the sense that they're saying, like, I need help today. Uh, you know, i got to pay the rent at the end of the month. How am I going to do that? Uh, you know, I've got to hire five people. I don't know where I'm going to find them, and I don't know how I'm going to pay them. Uh, it's, it's really the here and now that uh, the small businesses seem to be concerned about. No, that's absolutely right. And every year we ask businesses, what are the top three priorities that you'd like to see governments focus on? And this year, small businesses, as you said, they're focused on the immediate survival. They're asking for support with their electricity costs, with access to capital, with commercial rent relief, um, things that will get them through the next couple months. When we ask the same question, the larger businesses are talking about long-term infrastructure investments and regulatory modernization and workforce development supports all of which are equally important. So there's there's going to be this balance that government needs to strike between the short-term cost relief and the longer-term investments that support recovery and long-term competitiveness. Both things are important, and we're, we're watching out for how they strike that balance in the upcoming budget. Well, it's interesting to see how this is happening and how governments are going to respond to it, because as, as we've talked about in the past uh, with you and with, uh, with uh, of course, your CEO, Rocco, was uh, about the impact is going to have because a lot of the initial programs that were there for small business where you can defer your rent, you can do this, you can get a loan. We got to pay that stuff back at some point. And I know a lot of business people I've talked to are saying, you know, that that's going to be a reckoning when those, those bills come due. Uh, I know, I know that you guys have talked about debt forgiveness. I, I don't know the province hasn't acted on that, but I hope they're at least listening to these as possible solutions to some of these problems. From our conversations with them, they are, and it's, it's um, definitely on their radar that at some point, when all of that debt becomes due, um, there may be uh, a need for some debt forgiveness. Um, maybe not for every business, but there are certain sectors uh, like arts, entertainment, and uh, food and accommodations. The tourism sectors are really hurting right now, so there may need to be a targeted approach there. Um, I will say that uh, there's another survey, uh, the Canadian Survey on Business Conditions, that found recently 36% of businesses are concerned that they won't survive once they have to pay back that debt. Um, so that's a large share. And when you look more closely, again, there are certain sectors that are feeling that more. So we need to make sure that, you know, because we have to balance this with the government's fiscal position. So we would certainly recommend that the support be targeted towards those that are really at risk. Uh, I know we're just about out of time here, but just to finish on a positive note, and I think uh, you, we were leaning towards this anyway, uh, 57% of uh, small businesses are confident they, for their own outlook for their own business for this year. Uh, it was only 48% last year, so it looks, uh, Claudia, as if some of them are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. And when we look historically over the past five years, average confidence rate was lower than where it is now. So in a bigger picture, 
view, you know, we, we are doing well and businesses are reacting very positively to things like vaccines and the reopening that began this week. And it's very encouraging to see um, employment will rebound for the most part in most regions back to pre-pandemic levels this year. And governments are talking about this and possible solutions to this as well. And uh, it probably doesn't hurt the fact, by the way, that this is an election year here in Ontario. Uh, so a lot of asks, I think, are, are, are going to give serious consideration uh, from people that want to get elected, I guess, in June. But anyway, we'll talk about that a little further down the road. Uh, great report. It's always great to get a snapshot as to how people are feeling and what's going on in the small business enterprise, because that's, as you've told us many times, the backbone of the economy. And it's got to be. Uh, one of the first areas to recover if uh, we're going to have a strong economic recovery here in Ontario. Uh, let's stay in touch, Claudia, as uh, you guys continue to uh, uh, speak on behalf of small businesses and hopefully start, governments start to listen in and act on some of these things too. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for shedding some light on this today, Bill. You betcha. Take care. Claudia DeSanti, yeah. of course, is the uh, Senior Manager of Policy and uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. If you want to read the whole report, just uh, Google Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and it's up there on their webpage. And uh, you can uh, get some of the details about exactly where they're going. But there does seem to be a positive vibe that's happening, uh, which is not to say everything's happy and rosy. There's a lot of challenges yet to come. But, uh, you know, now people are getting vaccinated, and now that looks like some things anyway, uh, including in the hospitality industry, are starting to open up again. They're hopeful that uh, that those revenues are going to start putting them back on their feet. We certainly hope so anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to do a follow-up on a story that we've been covering for the last year and a half or so, and that has to do with lumber and the cost of lumber. You all remember, anybody that wanted to do any home renovations or fix-up during their house, uh, once the pandemic and some of the lockdowns started, uh, were shocked when you found out how much the, the price of lumber had gone up. And it's a messy situation and an ongoing situation between the Canada and U.S. governments and uh, because of tariffs and, and a number of different protests that have gone on. Uh, so now it looks like the United States South is becoming an increasingly important lumber supplier for North America, uh, bolstered by Canadian companies that are gaining access to some of the forests down there. Uh, so what's going on? Uh, to get some clarity on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Lisa Kovac, who is the president of the Western Retail Lumber Association. Uh, Liz, great to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well. Hi. Yes, I have been, Bill. How are you? I'm well. I'm doing pretty well here. Things are going well. I was surprised at this story, though, uh, because I knew about some of the challenges. You've outlined those pretty clearly to us about tariffs and, and some of the negotiations, shall we say, with the U.S. government. Uh, but this move here about Canadian companies actually uh, getting some of their product, especially when it comes to, uh, to softwood, uh, south of the border, what's going on here? Well, there are a number of mills that are Canadian that do own mills down in the States and they do produce it. Um, and that's probably something that hasn't been greatly shared with uh, with Canadians. But certainly the mills are looking to increase their production down in the U.S. Uh, and a big part of that is simply because there is the U.S. is underbuilt in terms of homes. They're probably short an inventory of about 1.5 million units, uh, which is the last statistic that I received yesterday. And a big part of the lumber needs that 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 do come from Canada, uh, it's about 25 to 30 percent is the import or is what Canadians export to the U.S. And in having conversations with our counterparts who run similar organizations in the U.S., they've indicated that there has been a push to increase U.S. operations by 3% on an annual basis, but they have indicated that they cannot go at it alone and do require material from Canada. So when you take a look at that and understand that 
if you don't have the material you require and you need to source it, it's certainly an area where they've really wanted to see the tariffs removed, not increased. And this is something that they've been advocating for since this change was made. Uh, and obviously, from that perspective, they're happy to see that there's change. Are they completely satisfied? No. Uh, and a big part of it is because those increases do get passed on to the consumer. And mm-hmm. when you're trying to increase your supply of affordable housing, the more you put on top in terms of inflation on the pricing, the more uh, challenging it is for their for their citizens. So there's always a concern about this. And I know we've talked about government policies that have not been very uh, visionary, shall we say, you know, for instance, you know, when they put the tariff on aluminum a couple of years ago, uh, and it was the aluminum, it was the Americans that basically said, don't do that. We need that product. We don't have enough here. We're not producing enough here. And it sounds like the same thing is going on here. So there's, it looks like at the short term, there's a net benefit here for Canadian companies. What does this do vis-a-vis tariffs though? I mean, if, if they're using U.S. lumber, uh, and, you know, you've mentioned a, a number of the places where this is actually happening right now. Uh, I would imagine that, that that pretty much skirts the issue of tariffs, doesn't it? Well, the tariffs are typically placed to, uh, almost as a protectionism for the local economy. So yeah. and it's to avoid cheap materials being dumped into the market. But that's not the case with this situation. And there are a lot of groups that have been lobbying and asking for a softwood lumber agreement because it takes away from that volatility. And prior to this whole pandemic situation, lumber was really stable when you take a look at at, at the pricing. The line was pretty much level. There was the odd little dip. Uh, Obviously when there was forest fires in, I believe it was in 2018, the dates are now starting to all mush together. Um, Originally we saw a spike, but they did certainly come back down. So, Uh, The tariffs, all they do is um, they just create a little bit more volatility. Obviously, it certainly increases the pricing. And and when you look at what happened recently, we were seeing our lumber, you know, the lumber prices coming down. There was some recovery. But just leading up to those tariffs, there was definitely some panic purchasing that was being done uh, in the state so that they could get ahead of some of those that pricing. And now when you look at what we're facing in the current situation, the transportation piece is now going to be our largest hurdle uh, and largest challenge to get through because there is material that's being produced, but if it can't be transported through truck or rail and it can't get to the consumer base, then we're running into more issues. Uh, and we're heading into springtime, which is going to be a construction area. People are going to be looking for stuff like this. What about what hap- is happening on the West Coast right now with the industry? Uh, Liz, I wanted to get an update on that as well. I think you and I had a discussion, uh, well, some years ago now, uh, about uh, some of the protests that were going out there about old growth forests and uh, and suggesting that there needed to be more protection. I know the government said they were going to look into this and develop some policies. What's the status on that now? Uh, I did read that this is a policy that the government is working on. I I will be honest, I'm not 100% sure where they're at from that perspective, but it certainly does need to be looked at. If you look at the whole natural disaster situation that's happening out west, it's a problem. Um, We've got ships that are stuck at ports. Uh, You know, this was one of those last things that was really needed out there. And you've got all your vessels, your thoroughfare, uh, you know, you've got your blood vessels basically cut off. So um, there is, BC is in a state of repair. They're trying to repair their highways. Obviously, goods are moving again. But when you look at something along the lines of the Coquilla Highway, um, there was already there's already some demand to have um, some upgrades made there. And of course, now you're working through 
construction, you've got trucks that are moving at 40 kilometers an hour, which normally they would be traveling at 110. So that's certainly added on to that piece. So obviously there's going to be some more attention paid to the environmental piece out that way. And certainly something I'll look into. So next time we have this conversation, I'll have a little bit more information with you for you on that piece. Excellent. Yeah, I just wanted to get, I hadn't seen anything either, which is why I was wondering exactly where they were. I would imagine if they had developed legislation and we're trying to move forward on that, it would have been something that they would have been, uh, you know, running up the flagpole and they haven't done that yet. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I really appreciate, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and there's certainly, that's certainly an area where there's more and more, um, we've even been hearing more from our members in terms of uh, there needing to be some more effort spent on that because we need to we need to make sure that the industry does remain healthy. Absolutely. Uh, Liz, as always, appreciate your time. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again, I'm sure, with uh, some updates uh, very shortly. You too. Thank you. Have a really great day. You too. Liz Kovach uh, from the Western Retail Lumber Association. And this is going to impact even you know people in Hamilton, London, every place else. Price of lumber goes up again. Price of housing goes up. Uh, price of everything goes up. And uh, that can be a problem. So we'll keep an eye on that for you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.